Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 332 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by ICM and Pro Media Fire, and my guest is Bobby Herrera. We have done a little bit of a pivot on this podcast. That seems to be the word of the last month as we head into month two of uh, the current global crisis. And uh, we just uh, asked, you know, how can we get alongside you? And so what we've done is uh, redone our lineup. You're going to hear a bunch of fresh interviews. It's funny, you work ahead. I was done this podcast up, uh, well, for another month or so. And then we kind of scrapped all that. We're re-recording episodes and bringing you some real-time feedback for the most part on the global crisis. Uh, I think, as you know, I also started a second podcast called Church Pulse Weekly. So that is more of a news and uh, analysis style podcast that I co-host with David Kinneman. We bring in top church leaders, more of a panel style where we talk about what's happening this week. Uh, on whatever week you happen to be listening. So uh, you can find that at Church Pulse Weekly. And then what we're doing with this podcast is deconstructing in longer conversations some of the crisis. And and then once in a while, we're going to bring you, you know, long-awaited episodes like Mike Todd. So many of you have asked about Mike Todd. Yeah, he's going to be broadcast when his book comes out at the end of April, or at least that's the current plan. But uh, Bobby Herrera, my guest today, who is CEO of the Populous Group, a company that supplies numerous Fortune 100 companies with uh, staffing. Uh, We were supposed to record this interview about a month ago, and then it got rescheduled. So we just talk about the crisis now, because guess what? As CEO of a large company, that's what he's struggling with. And uh, he shares some really good principles that he learned in the Army, actually, He talks about VUCA, which you will soon understand what that means. I didn't. And uh, so does the guest next week, Ken Costa, who is an international investment banker, as we talk about the economic collapse associated with what's happening right now. Uh, So we're just trying to bring you real-time conversations. I've also got Mark Sayers lined up for this month now. Mark and I were supposed to get together in Australia, but we got together via Skype anyway. And uh, because, you know, travel these days. And we talk about crisis leadership, plus all the other things Mark talks about. I've got David Kinneman and Scott Beck coming up. We will talk about responding to this crisis. Steve Cuss, all about anxiety and leadership. Sean Morgan, who's coaching pastors through everything. And yeah, Tim Keller as well. And then as things kind of normalize, I don't know when that'll be, uh, or from time to time, we'll bring you some of the regularly scheduled interviews as well. Anyway, I just wanted you to know, we are doing everything we can to serve you, to help you, and uh, would love to know what you need too. So hit me up on social. I'm on Instagram at Carrie Newhoff, Facebook, Twitter at C Newhoff. And uh, I've also got a brand new course I'd like to tell you about. It's called How to Lead Through Crisis. My team and I decided to make it 100% free to you. And uh, I'm going to talk about the crisis at the end in my What I'm Thinking About segment. But if you want to jump into that course, why don't you head over to howtoleadthroughcrisis.com. You can get it 100% free or just text CRISIS to 33777. Just the word CRISIS to 33777. We had in the first 24 hours over 2,500 leaders jump into that course. And uh, it's just all the best stuff I could come up with on CRISIS free to you and your team. Also really want to thank our partners. Uh, Everybody is in this together. And ICM, as much as you have needs and I have needs, ICM is uh, International Cooperating Ministries. 
they are moving around the world to try to help indigenous pastors around the world. Uh, there's been a lot of stories about India, for example, and the crisis happening there. Well, they're in India. And imagine navigating this crisis as a pastor in India where your church not only doesn't have a building, but you don't have resources to anything and you really don't have money in the best of times. So ICM is a leader in global church development work and they work with local leaders and they're really coming alongside them in a time of crisis and their methods are proven. If you are looking for a great ministry to support, and I hope you are, my wife and I have tried to step up our giving, not only in terms of free resources, but in terms of being able to come alongside people. Uh, They are EFCA accredited. They have four stars on Charity Navigator, and they're getting God's word into places that have never heard it before. You can start for only $35 a month and be equipping pastors in a developing nation. So make sure you check them out at icm.org forward slash carry. That's icm.org forward slash carry. And then Promedia Fire has been doing some great work. Oh my goodness, I'm just so impressed with their response. So they do digital media, but what they want to help you with is free stuff. Between now and Easter, which is right around the corner, the Pro Media Fire team has uh, put together some incredible graphics that you can use for free because you're ramping up your social media ministry. Uh, and just head on over to greatnews.world. That's greatnews.world. There are free graphics there for you and for every church prior to Easter and uh, would love for you to get behind our friends at Pro Media Fire. Hey, we are all in this together. I am so glad you've joined us. Remember, if you want to get my free crisis course, go to howtoleadthroughcrisis.com or text CRISIS to 33777. Well, Bobby Herrera is the CEO of Populous Group. He has a powerful story. His new book is called The Gift of Struggle. Uh, and he tells some stories from that book. And uh, yeah, how do you lead through all this? What do you cut? What do you keep in crisis? How do you get your team thinking ahead when they can only think about today. We cover all of that and so much more. And you know what I love about my conversation with Bobby? Uh, he was a listener. Uh, he actually sent me his book. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. But listen to his heart. And uh, I hope my heart stays as soft as his appears to be in this conversation. So without further ado, my conversation with Populous Group CEO, Bobby Herrera. Bobby, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you. Really is. Yeah, grateful to connect, Harry. Yeah, and fun. You sent me uh, a handwritten note. You've been listening to the podcast for a little while. And uh, Pat Lencioni calls you the best CEO you've never heard of, which is a high compliment coming from Pat. So that's a very kind man. How did you get to know Pat? Well, you know, interesting story, Carrie. I, um, I met Pat in 2014, I believe, for the first time. Yet uh, when I was about two years into starting my entrepreneurial journey, I was overwhelmed. I was frustrated. I was dodging arrows. I had no idea what I was doing. And one of uh, uh, a gentleman that had been a student of his work gave me one of his earlier fables. And I'd met this gentleman at a networking event that I reluctantly attended. And I read the fable and he said, hey, if you read this fable, I'll give you more time. I said, no problem. I can do that. And I desperately wanted to learn from this man. And I remember reading that fable. It was the four obsessions where, you know, his dad, Rich, was one of the main characters. And I remember thinking to myself, it's like, uh, like I'm overwhelmed with this entrepreneurial thing, but I can do this like this I can do. 
And I started studying all of his work since then. And you, know, you fast forward about 10, 12 years from that moment. And Pat had a friend who's an attorney in California. Mm -hmm. And he had stopped by one of my offices in San Francisco to meet you know, with one of my executives. And she has all of Pat Lencioni's books on her bookshelf. And so he asks, asks her, hey, so what is this? And he goes, well, this is the way Bobby works. This is our overall methodology of how we run our company. If you don't do this, you're not going to be on his team. And he told her, hey, Pat's one of my good friends. We coach uh, football together. And a week later, he told Pat about my story, he told Pat about you know, what we do. And I get a phone call from Pat. And next thing you know, I'm in his office talking to him several months later. And we've been building on the relationship ever since. That's a pretty cool thing. I mean, one of my favorite business authors and speakers, Patrick Lencioni. And uh, that's really neat that uh, you've got that kind of connection. So uh, Bobby, obviously, uh, we're recording this in the midst of the biggest crisis in our lifetime and perhaps one of the greatest ones in, in uh, history. And we definitely want to go there because I want to talk about how things are changing. Uh, but give us a quick snapshot of just who you are, what you do, what your company does. And then we're going to talk about the gift of struggle in the context of the struggle of a lifetime. Yeah, wonderful. So I'll start with uh, the backside of the resume first, the more important part. Yeah. So above all, I'm an all pro dad. I'm a proud army veteran. I'm a student of struggle and God's given me more than I deserve, Gary. So <laughs> I'm one of, I'm one of 13 kids. So I still eat with my elbows on the table. My wife hasn't been able to break me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate, uh, on the other side of the resume, you know, I, I built an organization named Populous Group. It's in its 18th year. We help companies better manage their non-permanent workforce. And in real simple English, that just means that you know, most organizations have two workforces, a full-time workforce and a non-permanent workforce. We help them better manage that fast-growing, confusing workforce that can be comprised of many different... Casual uh, contractors, uh, temporary, part-time, that whole side, Bobby? You got it. Foreign nationals, uh, independent consultants, yeah. uh, and they're all treated differently. And you know, that's really relevant now, Carrie, because... You know, with organizations managing, you know, large workforces in general, many of our customers are Fortune 100, and they're all responding to this differently. And, right. you know, these flexible workforces, there's a lot of really good people that rely on these independent gigs, per se, to help serve these companies or they're working for. They're my employees, and they're they're being hit incredibly hard during this difficult time. And yeah, I was I was going to ask you. So we're three weeks into the crisis, so to speak, as we record this. How has this impacted employment, both in terms of your employment, some of the top companies, et cetera, et cetera? Because I know a lot of churches are looking at layoffs. It's interesting. The data says no, but the stories say yes. So I don't know right. what to do with that. I know that in Canada, where I am, a million people filed for unemployment insurance in like a two-week window. Uh, in the yeah. U.S., there's been massive dislocation and job loss, and we've never seen anything like it in our lifetime. So give us a little snapshot of how it hit the uh, non-permanent workforce. You know, here's some interesting vitals that uh, have really been catching my attention. Um, you know, if you look at two weeks ago, we had the largest 
amount of unemployment claims ever right. in U.S. history. Worse than and, the Great Depression, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, what's interesting is as I unpack that that part of the narrative for what we're all going through right now, it was just you know four weeks ago, I mean two months ago, we were at the lowest unemployment levels ever in our time. That's so. And true. you know, at the end of last year, we had hit unemployment levels that, I mean, we were in a deficit, and we've have we've been there for quite some time. And I mean, this has been uh, the great equalizer of sorts. Every industry's been impacted it by it significantly. And, you know, we're a flexible workforce for most organizations as is. And so we're a pretty good indicator of either what's coming uh, in the positive. Right. Organizations ramp up for big projects. They don't want to make those uh, investments in full-time employees yet. Or, you know, as things start to get really difficult, it's usually the first workforce to go. And, Depending on the industry right now, the last two weeks we have been on a pretty pretty significant downward slide, hmm. uh, which is in line with what we're seeing overall. Now, with that though, I think one of the more uplifting positive trends that I've seen, and being a student of your work and the the impact that you make on leaders, there's been such a drastic uh, increase in humanity and compassion. And I'm genuinely seeing uh, leaders of all organizations treat their employees with such compassion and such care that, yeah. unfortunately, in a lot of cases, wasn't there before, mm. Carrie. Um, you know, as much as I'd like to say uh, the the opposite, it it is spiking the essence of humanity and compassion and leadership, which is well overdue. So mm-hmm. I think that everyone's doing the best they can to you know, to retain both sides of their employee workforce right now. Wow. So everyone's trying to retain and yet you've seen some massive layoffs and losses, um, in your industry. Yeah, I have, I mean, I, th- I think there's, there's some that, uh, even now are probably already past the point of recovery. So really some businesses and industries that'll just disappear. Well, I, I mean, I think it's, yes, there's some that you and I get to a lot of events. We speak at events and, mm-hmm. uh, like, those no telling when they're going to come back. There's big organizations that are dependent. That's their lifeblood. So if they can't pivot quickly, if they weren't doing those things that allowed them to pivot quickly prior, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be real painful. Yeah, even I was scheduled to speak at South by Southwest this year, and you know I, I don't know we haven't heard anything official, but there have been articles about is South by Southwest even going to be around a year from now? You know, and you think about yeah. it, you're in the live event business. We serve a lot of church leaders on this podcast, also a growing number of business leaders who are listening. But, you know, churches in many ways, we're in the live events business. And so everyone's trying to pivot to digital. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen Have you seen anybody hiring in the last month? Have you seen um, any signs of hope? There's a big shuffling going on right now, and nobody mm-hmm. really knows what it means. And we probably haven't hit bottom as we record this, but like, are you seeing any any shifts where people are saying, actually, I need a few more workers or that's just no, everyone's tightening, the turning off the tap? No, we actually are, Carrie. You know, we talked a little bit about that offline. But yeah. one of the one of the other interesting trends that we're seeing right now is uh, you know, obviously a lot of organizations that are being called to action to either make more ventilators or make more masks. A lot of the supplies to help these wonderful people on the front lines 
in the medical profession. As they pivot, obviously we're seeing the need for more specialized skills and people right. that can help out there as they adapt quickly. We're also seeing a significant, uh, uh, the, the momentum hasn't shifted a whole lot yet for our technology-based customers. Obviously, the need for their services right now has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So you know, we're seeing a lot of those where they're already in work-from-home type scenarios or readily available to deploy. We're seeing that still continue, not quite business as usual. However, uh, they're probably more delaying now than making any major decisions. Yeah, uh, We're also seeing uh, a pretty interesting trend that uh, companies who have a global footprint where they've outsourced some of their services, whether it be call centers or whether it be service centers, they're starting to bring them back in. Huh. One, to adapt to the service levels as, you know, whether it be banks, you know, large financial institutions, like they're having to respond to all these questions that their customers have and they can't rely on their offshore call center uh, services. So they're bringing that back in and, you know, and they're, they're hiring. Make, yeah. They're hiring. They're having to make significant uh, adjustments on how they care for these people. But, you know, they're, you know, everyone's doing the best they can to try to answer a lot of the questions. You know, there's a, there's a term that I learned in the military, Gary, that I've been using from the moment this started. I call it uh, VUCA. A friend of mine reminded oh, me of yeah. it recently. And, uh, you want to so explain that? This. That was really, really good. I, I read that in an article. I don't know whether it was through Pat Lencioni or who it was, but mm-hmm. I read that in an article. Vuka, explain that. Yeah, so I, I learned it very early in, in my, my career in the military, but it, it's an acronym and it stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Right. And when you have a lot of that, obviously it causes a lot of stress. It causes a lot of overwhelming feelings on what to do next. And very early on, as a soldier in my military career, you learn how to, i.e., manage the VUCA. And so from the moment this started, what I started doing with my leadership team and my teams across the country is, hey, first and foremost, the most important thing that I want you focusing on now is managing the VUCA for yourself Mm. and for your teams. Because our responsibility from a leadership perspective is, to help our teams think really well. So vulnerability, because uncertainty, complexity, complexity, and ambiguity. Ambiguity. Yeah. I'd love to go there. How do you manage the VUCA? <laughs> well, here's, here's what three, three questions that uh, I've been guiding my team with is first and foremost, under normal times, our teams are always asking themselves three questions. What's the purpose? What's the plan? And what's the process? And when you're under times of stress and there's lots of VUCA, you have to be even more clear about the clarity for those three questions. Hmm. Because people at this point, when there's a lot of VUCA going on, they don't want to make decisions. Yeah. So one of the first things we do is, look, let's move everything to a high directive, high supportive model. Let's be very clear about what's essential. Right. So... What's the purpose? So for us, because we have thousands of employees nationwide, for us, I made the mission very clear. 
Like right now, our sole purpose is to keep our community safe and keep all of our contractors employed and serviced. Mm-hmm. That's it. Anything else that doesn't align with that is it is is off the table for now. So we go into simplification and editing. And then secondly, okay, what's the plan? Then that's where you look at your routines, you look at everything that you that you're doing to execute on that sole purpose and align every ounce of energy in the organization around it. And the third part, hey, what's the process? That's all around the, you know, we use the four disciplines model from Oh yeah. Pat. And, Ford, yeah. You know, so it's like, hey, what are we over communicating it? What, how are we reinforcing it? What are we building into our systems right now to make sure that we can support it? So, I mean, that's the that's the steps that we've taken as we've managed Avuka, because right now, if you don't simplify it and go into directive editing mode, um, you're going to cause a lot of angst and uh, unintentionally, I'll be it, but you're going to cause a lot of angst for your people. Isn't that interesting? We we didn't talked before this interview, but I went instinctively without knowing what VUCA was into a similar mode. And by the time it was clear that, you know, (laughs) when the stock market fell off a cliff and just kept Mm -hmm. falling and people were losing their jobs and borders were shut down and people got quarantined, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what's going on here? I instinctively went in to try to protect the employees. I do not want to go into layoffs. I want to keep Mm -hmm. people here and then serve the customer. What does our customer need? How can we help them? Knowing that probably the business model was going to have to pivot because some of it was live speaking, some of it was core sales, which obviously in a downturn are going to take some kind of a hit. Uh, Less than I thought, but still going to take a hit. And so we came up with a new podcast. I now have two. And then we just today, the day we're recording this, launched a free course um, to serve our customers. And that's not the end of the list. It's the beginning of the list. But you mentioned editing. How mm-hmm. do you edit? How do you simplify? What What were some things that you initially? Drew? Well, first of all, let me let me bifurcate the question. Um, any comment on those two reactions and what else we should be paying attention to? And then how do you edit out what used to matter that doesn't matter? Because I think that's where a lot of leaders are struggling right now. It's like I don't know mm-hmm. what to cut, and sometimes you end up cutting the jugular, and then you're like, oh, I cut the wrong thing. What just help us right. think through that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the question that I heard first and foremost, yeah, you, there were 12 questions in there to be honest. Yeah, Bobby, just yeah. to be fair, <laughs> good for you. That's wonderful because there's going to be a lot of leaders that are going to be able to benefit from mm-hmm. a lot of the wisdom that you all be helping there. So, one, good for you to be able to do that. You know, the here are the questions that we asked ourselves. Perhaps I, I hit it from that perspective as we, yeah, 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 it. let's go there. You know, um, Prior to everything changing for everyone, we pride ourselves on what we call, hey, we climb as one, we have our march, you and I talked talked offline about my passion for the mountains and Mm. how I call my employee climbers, right? So we had our existing mission. And under that mission, everyone knew what to do as part of their role in the ecosystem of our organization. So as we moved into, i.e., our new mission, now that we're all 100% remote, servicing confused customers all over the country. And I simplified everything for everyone. Hey, what's our purpose? What's our plan? This is how we're going to do it. What's our process? Then one of the things that um, I leaned into something that we've been utilizing very well from my time in the military. It's like I, I, I credit our ability to debrief 
pretty much better than anyone to um, so much of our success in our climb the last few years. So I look for every opportunity in our debriefs to boil it down to just one thing after every call that everybody understands we're all supposed to do leaving whatever team call that we're on. Hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah and you're dealing uh, with how many people on a call like that? Uh, well, I mean, my core exec team, uh, you know, they all have their different parts of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. but, you know, our organization, we, we're serving several thousand across the U.S. Yeah. So, you know, so you're trying you to get to everybody to focus on one thing. Just it, just one thing. Can you give us just an example it. of what that would be from the last few weeks? Like just pull one out of the air. So this week we're focused on X. Yeah. So this week our focus is pretty simple as part of that core mission is how are we going to respond to everything that's coming down from the CARES Act? You know, this massive stimulus bill that is uh, beyond complex, it's trickled down to every organization. So for us this week is, all right, what do we need to understand and how do we respond to the information that we're getting? Because there's thousands upon thousands of people that are relying on us right now, not only to get paid on time, but to get paid accurately and they have a lot of questions that they're asking, you know, around scenarios that are completely uncharted waters for everyone. So you basically so, pivot the entire organization to focus on one thing. Yeah. Most, you know, wow. it, it's more simple than, it's more simple than, uh, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Yet the, the reality is I think there's a lot of organizations that, that, Maybe they're manufacturing a product or they're, you know, producing a lot of complex products. And I don't have that luxury, but a services organization, organizations that are primarily focused around one core mission. If, if you're not simplifying it even further, you're going to find yourself in a lot of pain as you try to manage the VUCA for people. Wow. Okay. That's really good. How did you know what to edit? How did you know what to cut? And can you give us a couple of concrete examples that you're like, yep, that doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So prior to heading into this crisis, like we had our existing rally cry Mm -hmm. and underneath our rally cry, we had another Pat Lancioni term. That's from silos, politics and turf wars. You got it. So, yeah. uh, So we looked at, we zoomed out and we looked at everything within our existing rally cry and as part of that, we just looked at it and said, hey, can it, can it be delayed? If so, right. yes, no, why, when? So we just boiled, we just laid that out and put it to the side and said, no, it's, it's not essential right now. We can't. And, you know, I call it double in the debriefs. So, you know, are you familiar with what a debrief is? No, but uh, uh, I mean, I have an idea in my head, but we yes. probably mean different yeah. things. So please explain. So... Uh, a debrief is a uh, vernacular that I've brought over from the military to my organization. And it's real simple. I think the military does it better than anyone. It's, it's, you know, after every mission and or before every mission, soldiers in a military unit will debrief. What are we going to do? Who's going to do what? And where do we need to be by when all the core essential questions. Right. And after every mission, they debrief again. You know, what do we do well? What do we not do well? What do we need to start doing, stop doing, continue doing? And we're very rigorous about that 
under normal conditions, but in crisis mode, we look at our existing routines and at a minimum, we double them. So we have taken a real intentional look at our debriefs and in our debriefs, Carrie, that's where we're looking at those non-essential items and putting them to the side. So we're doubling the debrief, doubling the discussions, doing everything we can to look for ways to simplify what our team needs to do to execute on our current crisis mode plan. That's interesting. Uh, you know, from some of the resources I've been listening to, I listened to an interview speaking in the military with uh, General Stanley McChrystal and Ryan mm-hmm. Hawk. Ryan will be a guest on this podcast this spring. Um, and listening to him interview Stanley McChrystal, he, who leads now a, a company of 90, not a, in the military anymore. He's retired, but he just said it was, he felt it was so critical to check in with his team every day. And I felt that impetus, like just mm-hmm. check in, how are you doing? What are we doing? A, a leader, do you think like you got, you got tens of thousands of leaders listening to this? How would you advise them to be present for their teams in a moment like mm-hmm. this? Well, a tweak that I've made, obviously, you know, first and foremost, making sure, you know, making sure that you understand one, how they're feeling and how you understand how they're managing the VUCA first and foremost. But a tweak that I've made, Carrie, is yeah, I think it's one thing to ask someone, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And in my observation has been in most cases, people's initial response is going to be, hey, I'm good. You know, or they'll give you a surface level answer. I'll always listen. I'll always ask a few more follow up questions. And then after that part of the discussion, I'll then ask them this. Okay. Now will you tell me, how are you really feeling? That's good. And just adding that one additional word, I always, I'd say nine times out of 10, I get a deeper narrative from them on maybe something that's happening for their family, maybe some stress they're carrying. And I'm also taking advantage of that to edit maybe things that are on their mind. So just one word, one little tweak. Um, I've been doing that every single conversation throughout this. And I've found that most times I get a little bit deeper just by adding that one word when I ask it again. So I don't, I don't want to ask a, what sounds like a really obvious question. It's going to sound like mm-hmm. a really obvious question, but I don't think it is. You said something earlier that, you know, the people who've had to make massive cuts and uh, mm-hmm. some of the companies that maybe aren't going to be around uh, mm-hmm. in the future, that you've noticed that CEOs or senior leaders are acting far more humanely than perhaps in the past, which is good. Mm-hmm. And I think a credit to things mm-hmm. that like Patrick Lencioni and other leaders have been trying to do in these, quote, soft skills. And certainly that's been something I've been trying to to help leaders with. Um, but again, here comes the obvious question. <laughs> Why is that important? I think it's really important. But uh, in corporate, that, and, and actually in church world, which has a reputation for pastoral, often can be brutally unpastoral. And mm-hmm. I, I just want to know from your perspective why it's really significant for leaders to be finding out how their team is really doing. Why is that important to you? Uh, well, I think for you know people like yourself and myself, we consider it permission to play. I mean, I think first and foremost, but you know, before this crisis even started, Carrie, I was, I was of the belief that there's never been a greater need for compassion in leadership. And, you know, unfortunately I believe most leaders unintentionally, 
believe the dogma or some of the alpha myths that have been in leadership for far too long. But putting that aside for a moment, um, I'll often say that whether I'm working with a group of veteran entrepreneurs, mentoring another CEO or something, I'll often ask them this question. What's the single most important asset that you will ever own in your lifetime? And I'll always get some creative answers. And, you know, we talk about it and then I say, hey, that's, you're, 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 you're correct in essence on whatever it is that they say. You know, I get some really good, really good positive answers. But I always boil it down to this. I was like, trust is the single most important asset that you will ever own. Hmm. because regardless of what problem you solve for the world, regardless of whatever impact you want to make, the, the more trust you have, the more you're going to be able to impact and or make the impact that you want to make. And I don't believe that leaders uh, intentionally measure that with their everyday actions. Mm-hmm. However, like now, there's never been a greater need for people to trust the source of where they're getting their information, whether it be, you know, for their job, for their families. And so there's never been a bigger why to really lean into that and build trust with every interaction. And I think a lot of leaders are having to accelerate that now that they're checking in on their people. Uh, but uh, to me, it's, it's all around building that, that critical asset that we'll, that we'll own during our leadership journey. Something I've been practicing <clears throat> for the last decade, and I've definitely seen different results when you really care how people are doing. What mm-hmm. difference does it make sort of in normal conditions and then especially in these times when you get an honest answer to the question about how people are doing? How does that, how does that change things in your view? So... Ask me your question again, Karen, because yeah. I want to make so, sure I understand. We, okay, let's assume in one scenario, you, you're you just like, okay, did you get your stuff done? Da, 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 da. You don't really yeah. ask how they're doing or you do the perfunctory, hey, right. how you doing? I'm good. Yeah, we're getting by. Okay, great. Now on to the yeah. agenda. So mm-hmm. that's one scenario, but you're actually going deeper. And I'm sure those are not three-minute conversations. Sometimes they are. Right. Sometimes that's a 15-minute mm-hmm. conversation or a 20-minute conversation or, you know, there are tears or whatever. Mm-hmm. What is the difference when you go deeper? How does that impact what happens in the organization? So I'm going to kind of walk you through a visual that I think uh, may help you touch a little bit. So on one side, if you if you do a graph and on one side you had uh, you put involved, I mean, demandingness. And on the other side, you put involvement. Hmm. So I'll often ask people, name the one person who's had the most significant impact in your life. And pretty quickly, someone can name, you know, a mentor, a pastor, a teacher, a coach, mm-hmm. uh, someone that really shaped who they've become. And then I'll ask them this. I was like, if I was to ask you to plot them on this graph in terms of how involved they were with you and how demanding they were with you. In other words, did they hold you accountable to what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it? And was their bar so high that you had to stretch to get it? And then from an involvement perspective, did they understand who you were 
what made you tick? What was important to you? Did you feel like they really cared? And I'll often ask, do you feel like they wanted more for you than from you? Because I believe that's the essence of leadership. And uh, they'll say, yes. I say, okay, so if you put them up here and you plot it up to the far right, you have what you call, like it, the higher demanding and the higher involved you are as a leader, you're going to build a high trust culture. Hmm. And so the impact is that is you have to balance out the demandingness and the involvement to get that high trust, collaborative, purpose-driven culture that I believe every leader imagines building. Now, the opposite of that, to your example, if you have someone just high, highly, uh, they're, they're not very involved, but they're highly demanding, you're going to end up getting that culture that the person that we all know lows and talks about when their boss isn't around mm -hmm. where it's all about the number. It's all about the results. They don't care about me as a person. So where you are on that graph, Carrie determines the impact that it has on the culture and the level of trust and cooperation and collaboration and contribution and all those things that matter to us. That's a really good. That's a, that's a super helpful twist. And I think you're right. People, people are terrified in this environment. They're scared mm -hmm. for their jobs. They're scared for their family. They're scared about mm -hmm. health concerns. And I think having a boss who cares, I always think of it from the perspective of people bring their whole selves to work. Mm -hmm. So you, if you have a fearful employee, if you have a, a exhausted yeah. employee, an employee that has a tough marriage right now, I can't fix your marriage, but being able to talk about it to understand that what that's at the table on the table and that they care really, really helps engagement at work, I've, I've discovered. Anything That's else it. you would share before we move on about just how to interact with your team in a season of crisis like this? Well, I think, Gary, uh, most leaders out there are doing the best they can. And, yeah. you know, they're trying to, you know, meet the results and survive. You know, to, what, one thing that I've, that I've started doing for the last few weeks that has been real helpful is I think I look at a crisis in three parts. So you have the survive part, and then you have the recovery part, hmm. and then you have what I actually call the reframe. Hmm. And one of the things that I started asking myself early on is, all right, first and foremost, do we have the plan in place to survive? And are we thinking ahead so that we can recover? And how can I start guiding my leaders right now to start reframing their thinking? So in other words, uh, as you know, through my leadership philosophy and so forth, I believe that every struggle that we have has a gift pack inside. Mm -hmm. And so what I've started doing, Gary, very intentionally, and you can see it, this little pamphlet that I have right here, three weeks ago, as I started having conversations with my teams, as they started sharing things they're doing differently as a team, I started writing them all down and I started encouraging them. All right, we're getting stronger with that idea that you just shared, write it down. And I'm having every leader in my organization write down everything they're learning. And the messaging for me is, look, I'd rather be directive than you be resentful down the road of all the things that we're learning right now when we debrief and try to figure out all the things that occurred that are changing who we're going to be after we get through this, because we're going to get through this. And I'm telling every single one of them, 
I'm going to invest in all the better ideas that are coming out of your pamphlet. So I'm using that to reframe their narrative. And I'm on page eight. I actually told the leader this morning, hey, I'm on page eight. Catch me if you can. What page are you on? I'm so I'm using that to start to reframe their mode of thinking. You're already getting them to think ahead about how are we going to be different? How are we going to move into the future? That's the, that's the part of the reframe because once you get out, if you start reframing now, Carrie, my opinion is that your recovery period, all the stuff that you have to clean up afterwards, you'll flatten that curve because it's hmm. going to be really difficult to gather all the pieces together once you once you get together, but we're all learning so much. I think few leaders are probably writing them down. I'd like to encourage them to do that because I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, we're going to get so many curveballs thrown at us over the course of the yeah. next few weeks. Start reframing in parallel with your survive and thrive approach, but encourage your whole organization to do it. Okay. That's a really interesting perspective because Uh, I'm trying to imagine the new reality. So Mm -hmm. give you an example. I'm a speaker, right? I'm on, I've already flown, I don't know, 40,000 miles this year, like a lot of Mm -hmm. miles and got grounded three weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, speaking's going to come back, but I think it's going to be different. I think Mm -hmm. we're going to be in an economic recovery period, et cetera. So we're kind of guessing. I don't think, you know, unless you know something I don't know. I don't think any of us really knows where the bottom is on this thing. And I don't think we really have a clear picture of what's ahead. So how do you reframe if you don't know what's ahead? Like what are the, what's, what's a responsible reframing and what's a, that's pure speculation. We need to move on. How do Mm -hmm. you, any, any advice on that? Well, my narrative with my leaders, Carrie, has been around, look, based on what we can control. So based on what you see and based on, how we respond, what is it you're learning that's making us better, that's going to allow us to climb as one, that's going to allow us to serve our mission more effectively. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, that's, it. that's an example of where you really have to hone in on, the, on that narrative and that line of thinking, because if we start focusing on all these external factors, I mean, it's a guessing game. So you're looking at what's in your control. That's exactly. It. And our answer that's to it. that was, well, let's double down on digital products. And I'm not saying I'll never speak again. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to speak again. And, mm-hmm. But it just could be a different market. And again, that's interesting because that was beyond our control. Can you give us one or two examples from your field or your company where you're like, that is a really, help, just to make it really tangible, that's a helpful sure. reframe. Sure. But I'll give you one that I wrote down very early on. As we were wondering, you know, for a lot of our employees yeah. that are in the, you know, contractor space, there was a lot of complexity around how their benefits are handled and who's eligible and, you know, what about people that are really in need? And we're a very purpose-driven organization. You know, at my core, I believe everyone deserves an opportunity to to succeed and a kind act changed my life when I was a young man. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it and I looked at our entire benefits plan and I was like, why haven't we started some form of like, uh, like, a retainer or foundation where we can retain funds for benefits for people that are deeply in need that were part of our, you know, contractor population. Wow. And we didn't have that before. So, you know, I think there's a lot of situations that are going to be situational to whatever 
problem you solve for the world. But all of our conversations have stimulated so many ex- examples for me. And many of them are questions like, okay, well, let's explore this. Why can't we do this? Or what if we tried this? Or does, it, does that make sense? So you're tentatively rebuilding what I'm calling to, to our leaders, the new normal. Like there's a new normal coming. We're not going to go back to normal. Things have changed too much for that. Right. Um, it's not like somebody hit the pause button and we're just going to hit play. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're already thinking about, okay, from what we can see, th- th- mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. So one of the conversations yep. we're having sort of in my world for church leaders is mm-hmm. digital will be the new default. It just will be. We, You and I talked about that offline too, just about remote teams, right? Like all of a mm-hmm. sudden. Any thoughts on some of the reset that will happen even with employment with remote teams and that kind of thing? Do you, do you have a sense of where that is heading when it resets? Well, my sense and my observation, Carrie, is that uh, it was already at a place to where if, if you can't offer some type of remote or flexible option for talent that you're trying to attract to your organization, yeah. you were going to be at a disadvantage. Now, going forward, I believe it will become permission to play for everybody. Right. Whereas before organizations were doing either just enough or dismissing it or perhaps hadn't caught up, maybe some driving business reasons. After this, this has been the great equalizer. Like if you don't have that option for your workforce and or more flexible options for them to care for their family in the event something happens, the war for talent is going to be even more difficult for you. Yeah, because the economy will come back. People will have jobs. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's funny, you and I were talking about the High Impact Workplace course I did last fall, which at the time seemed like it was really ahead of the curve and now mm-hmm. feels like normal, uh, which is really, really, well, we're all in virtual organizations now. Right. Um, let's talk about the gift of struggle. So for those of you watching on YouTube, we've got Bobby's book. It's called The Gift of Struggle, Life-Changing Lessons About Leading. And... Um, it's a really powerful book, really, really uh, just some, some great life lessons in there. Um, tell us why struggle. I mean, you know, all of a sudden the world situation has amplified this title a thousand times over from what you probably had in mind. Uh, but why inherently is struggle a gift? And then how do you find the gift in the struggle right now? Yeah, good question. Great questions. Um, yeah. I'm going to answer the first part first, if you don't. Yeah, mind that, that one's the easy one. <laughs> You're right, <laughs> right, Bobby. Uh, but let me tell you a brief, a brief story. Yeah. So I was uh, 18 years old, and I was three weeks into basic training when I raised my hand to join the army. And three weeks in, you're right in the middle of that mental and physical breakdown, and you're in a haze. And I remember vividly, I was polishing my boots by flashlight about 1130 at night. And there was no end in sight for that evening. And all around me, I could hear the soldiers complaining about the morning that was going to start way too soon. And as I listened to, you know, this, my fellow soldiers, you know, grunt and moan about uh, what we were going through, I vividly recall thinking, you know what, I've, I've been waking up in the wee hours of the morning to work in the fields as part of a migrant farm working family ever since I can remember. I know what it's like to have absolutely no money. I understand the painful feeling of not having any material material comfort 
and even less time. And I remember asking myself, well, maybe this was part of the plan. Like maybe I went through all that for a reason. Hmm. And I recall thinking, there's nothing that they can say or do to me in the next six weeks that I haven't somehow experienced. And in some cases, a harsher manner. I mean, I had even been asked to leave the table because of the language I spoke and the color of my skin. Hmm. And I remember thinking for the first time, Carrie, that, you know, we all struggle, but every struggle has taught me something. And that was the beginning of me shaping my leadership philosophy, which became, you know, just that we all struggle. Every struggle teaches us something. That's the gift. And leadership is sharing those gifts with others. And I started reframing my lens around my story. And for the first time in my life, I was looking at it differently. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it helped me understand that everything that I had gone through somehow prepped me for something I'm going through right now. And I started using it as a sense of encouragement for my fellow soldiers. And I carried that philosophy through my career imperfectly, albeit yet, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's been the leadership philosophy that's guided me. And, you know, I just believe struggle is the purest form of progress that any one of us will ever have. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents, your dad, and uh, some of your earliest memories as a child being out in the fields as a migrant worker? Yeah. So my, I'm the son of a bracero from Mexico, which what that means is, you know, my dad was actually a temporary contract worker from Mexico that would come to the U.S., so there was an interesting thread there based on what I do for my organization now and where my dad started, you know, part of his story. And mm-hmm. my dad did that for many, many years, Kerry. Backbreaking and labor, right? Backbreaking labor to handpick the fruits and vegetables that you know, we all enjoy. And uh, he did that for 10 years. And he would leave the family for 10, 11 months at a time. And he did that from 1954 to 1964. And then he finally immigrated the family to the U.S. based off of, of a promise that a kind rancher had made to him. And I joined the family story a few years later. I was the first one born in the U.S. Didn't speak English very well until I was about seven. Hmm. And all I knew growing up, you know, my dad would pull all of us as kids out of school in mid-April. And we would start our journey. We were living in southeast New Mexico. And we would go from New Mexico to Colorado to work in the onion fields and then to Wyoming to work in the sugar beets and then up to Idaho to pick potatoes and pears. And we'd make our way back down in uh, September and re-enroll back in school. And growing up that way, I thought every kid did that. So it was just normal, but your days weren't spent in daycare. They were spent in the fields with your dad, right? Yeah. Most, most of the days were, you know, spent, I'd get some time to play because I was younger, but Mm. Most of them was either following my parents, working in the rows with them or helping out any way that I could. And you know, from the time I was in third grade uh, or going to be a third grader, I was 10 hours a day in the field, sometimes six days a week. Wow. So, wow. so that's yeah, struggle. So I, you know, sometimes yeah, people go, yeah. I had a tough childhood. It's like, no, that's really struggle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So by the time I got to the army and I had that aha moment, I'm like, you know, I've been getting up in the wee hours of the morning to go to the fields like 30 minutes earlier is no big deal. 
and it helped me really understand that that gift that those years had given me and what it prepared me for. Was was there ever a time as a child or a teenager where the light started to go on and you're like, wait a minute, this is this is really hard. Yeah, the formidable years when I was a teenager, um, you know, probably my, my marker story leading up to that, you know, the bus story that yeah. I start the book Go ahead with. and tell it. It's uh, a great story. You know, I was 17 and uh, my brother Ed and I, we were on a return trip home from a basketball game hmm. and we were excited. You know, we'd won a big game and Along the way, we stopped for dinner and everybody unloaded off the bus except for me and my brother, Ed. And yeah, we were about to dig in and uh, have my mom's legendary burritos. We were sitting near the back and this gentleman steps on board the bus carrying. I remember as he's walking back, he teased me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. Mm. And then he said something to me that I'll always remember. Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner so that you can enjoy the rest of the team, nobody else has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid, just like you on this bus. And to this day, I, I can't tell the story without getting goosebumps. I got goosebumps right I, now. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I had this wave of gratitude come over me, Carrie, that uh, still hard for me to explain. And I remember stepping off the bus and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life outside of the desire to raise my hand a year from then. But although I didn't know what I was going to do after that kind act, I knew why. Hmm. Like I would somehow, some way, figure out a way to do something, create something, to pay forward that kind act to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. Hmm. And that moment gave me identity. It gave me purpose. And I often say that it gave me the hope that I could someday check the ultimate box, i.e., will my story matter? Because up to then, I didn't know if that was ever going to be a possibility for me because wow. I, I had more reverse role models around me than I you know, cared to admit. Although, like I wanted off that bus more than anything, Carrie, but I'd be lying to you if I told you that I was past this shame and past the embarrassment I was very accustomed to being on that bus, but I didn't want to be on that bus. I wanted off more than you know. Mm. And, you know, uh, there's an interesting backstory that I think is very relevant for these times. Uh, the gentleman that came on board the bus, he was a very successful businessman in the community. And the narrative that I told myself was that, you know, people like Harry Teague, they don't see kids like me. And with one kind act, not only did he, show me that I was wrong, but he taught me that one of the most important parts of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. Hmm. That was the first time in my life, Carrie, that I felt seen. And it changed the course for me. It uh, became the invisible force that drove me. And I knew that I was going to do whatever it took to pay that forward. And, you know, God's given me more than I deserve. And him seeing me that night changed everything for me. And there's a lot of people out there who are going to confront some form of struggle. And I think the hardest struggle is the, the, the pain that we feel inside where mm -hmm. self-doubt's going to settle in for so many good people at a pace that we've never seen before. And the time to see people 
has never been more important. It, 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 it can, the, he, it, I never imagined how it would change me. And it was, it was a life changing act for me. I so appreciate you sharing that. You know, you, you tell stories in the book um, about self-doubt that you went through seasons of self-doubt and how did you overcome those? Well, I had some very, you know, very great teachers throughout the years that, you know, showed me with their demandingness and their involvement that they wanted more for me than from me. You know, I talk about it several people in the book, but, um, you know, there were times, Carrie, that it felt like it was too much for me. Yeah. But every time, uh, it was that invisible force. It was that desire to, to create something, to pay for that kind of act that, that got me through it. Uh, the pain of what I was going through was never greater than my desire to make that obligation, that acceptance of that dinner that night become a reality. Yeah. Well, now you've got this big company where you're able to pay it forward to thousands of employees and see them and um, to make a difference in some of the top corporations in America. It's pretty amazing to see the the journey that God has put you on. I've been very, very grateful. Very yeah. grateful. And, you know, I, uh, a few years ago, I picked up the phone and I called that gentleman. Like, he had no idea. And I told him, uh, I told him the impact that it had on me. I told him everything I'd done to make it a reality. And it was a real special moment for us. And, you know, a few days later, I get a note from Harry Teague and you know, in his note, he says to me, he says, Bobby, thank you for calling me and telling me the bus story. I don't mind sharing how many tears I shed during and after that call. Mm. You made me feel like my life had mattered. Isn't that something? That is you know, He had no idea. And, you know, uh, last, this last June, uh, I did something that I've been waiting 33 years to do. I, you know, when we launched the book, The Gift of Struggle, uh, I had a big event in Detroit and I surprised everybody. I, I, I reached out to him and I flew him and his wife out. And the day of the, the launch, my brother and I took him out, uh, bought him lunch, had a great, great lunch with him and his wife, a little bit better than the cheeseburger he bought me. Yeah. Harry. Uh, and uh, after my talk that evening, I surprised the crowd. We had a pretty, pretty good crowd that night. And I, I brought him up on stage and he got a raving standing ovation. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. Oh my gosh. So it was, it was, it, it was uh, hands down one of my cherished moments where I was able to show him how, you know, the power of kindness and what it can do for a lot of people. How would, what advice would you have for leaders who are making those really tough decisions right now, Bobby, and may have to let some people go that they don't want to let go or, they've got to radically scale back or perhaps they're realizing they lead an organization or church that may not make it. Yeah. Um, how do they stay encouraged knowing that their life still matters? I mean, back to one of the earlier questions, there's the gift of struggle and those are real things, right. but like this is the deepest struggle. I think a lot of us have ever been in uh, at least when it comes sure. to work in the economy and health and so on. Uh, what would you say to them? Because I imagine they're pretty discouraged and pretty frustrated right now. Well, I mean, Carrie, I wish I had a, 
I wish I had a silver bullet answer for all those wonderful people, but we, you know, we're all going through it. You know, I, um, I'll tell you the questions I'm asking myself right now is, hmm. uh, is, Hey, what can we do yeah. and how much can we do and exhausting every possible route. And when we feel like, uh, something's not an op- option, then we flip the narrative and I'm like, okay, for the next hour, let's talk about, you know, why, how that's possible. Like we right. think it's not possible. Now I want you all to focus and tell me every reason why it would work. And, you know, if, if, if we're not going through every possible scenario and source of discussion and, you know, then you're not going deep enough. I think right now is the time for there to be absolutely no compromise of depth whatsoever because you're going to have to, you're going to have to make some tough calls, but figure out with your people, like do it with them, have those conversations with them. If you're going to say, look right now, the reality is that we may not be able to move forward. Let's sit down and talk about it. What could we do? Hmm. How can we help you? What is possible? I think that's a really good thing. One of the things I've talked to my team about is uh, it's a question I think I got from Mike Hyatt. And I don't know whether it started with him years ago, but whenever I've had a bump in the road and this is mm-hmm. more than that, it's like, what does this make possible? So your plans got canceled. What does this make possible? Mm-hmm. Well, now yeah. it can be simple. I can go mow the lawn. I, I can mm-hmm. go for a walk. I can get some sleep. But, you know, it's simple as that. And then a crisis like this, when a whole bunch of stuff gets wiped out overnight, mm-hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. what does this make possible? And that's where we came out of that question with, we can launch another podcast, which we'd been thinking about doing. We can, Mm -hmm. we can offer a free course. We Mm -hmm. can serve our leaders. We can start an Instagram series. We can start a blog series. We Mm -hmm. can do all of this stuff. So I think that's good. But what I see a lot of leaders doing is not practice leadership, but reaction ship, because I think crisis is paralyzing. Mm-hmm. And you get, you fall into the narrative of everyone's going under, everything's going down, everything's crashing. I yeah. have no options. How do you get, I've seen my team step up in yeah. ways, some of the best ideas have not been mine in the, these last 30 days. Actually, few of the good ideas have been mine. Um, how do you get the best out of your team? How do you make sure that they're really, particularly because there's, if you're a command and control leader, which I've tried not to be for a long time, but if you're command and control, mm-hmm. your team is used to saying, Sure. Yep. Okay. And they're not mm-hmm. used to thinking. So how would you, how would you counsel leaders to get the best out of their teams? Well, first I agree with you. The leadership chain is not the IQ chain. Like yeah. they have 99% of the information. So if they're not doing 99% of the talking, so there's, there's an opportunity for you to self-assess. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have a real simple, um, you know, part of my vernacular is like, uh, I have a real simple approach, Carrie, that I've been using for a while and I call it, Hey, put the pen in their hand and Mm. you can visualize that. And the way that I do it, whether it be around a specific scenario or whether it be around helping someone take, i.e. control of their climb, which is something that we do. We, we, I call my employees climbers, whether it be the career or something, the way I put the pen in their hand is like, I'll take out a blank sheet of paper and then on the left side, I'll say, okay, it, write down your gifts, like the gifts that you bring to our community, like the things that make your heart sing, the things that give you energy, the things that you're better at, that you excel at, that really excite you. And then 
after that, I'll take them to the middle part of the sheet and I'll say, okay, right there, I want you to write down based on what you see from your spot on the mountain, what are all the problems that you see need to be fixed in our ecosystem? Like start listing them, point them, write them all down. And you'll get some amazing insight on the stuff that they see that either you both know need to be fixed mm. or you may not even know it needs to be fixed. And they write those down and they'll say, okay, if you were to design a role where you disproportionately applied the majority of your energy utilizing those gifts to fix those problems, what would that look like? And again, they'll, they, they've already thought about it. We just haven't mined it out of them. And so our responsibility is to mine it out of them. I would imagine that's the first time some of those smart people have ever been asked questions like that. Is that fair? It's unfortunate. And yes, it is fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, we'll be surprised what we do when we put the pin in their hand and we create that safety for them. And whether you're in a crisis or whether it's fundamental yeah, yeah. You know, recovery after this, and that's permission to play leadership if you want to build a purposeful, compassion-driven uh, organization where your your people feel like you want more for them than from them. And you know, putting the pin in their hand really makes them feel valued and heard and like Mr. Teague made me feel mm. seen. It's like they're, they're wanting to know more than anything, does my voice matter? Well, give them that voice, but mind for it. And you do that, and not after you get to that part, then here comes the ownership piece. Then you can ask them, okay, now tell me what two or three things must happen or must you do in order for that to be a reality? And more often than not, they'll be like, okay, well, first and foremost, I have to find a successor. I have to train them. I have to do this. I have to do that. They'll come up with that. You just have to guide them. That's a, that's when you get self-driven employees, self-driven team members, right? That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. But go through the physical exercise of walking around the table and give them the pen and say, now let's go up to the, go up to the whiteboard. Let's go up to the board and let's draw this out. Wow. And it's, uh, everyone that I've ever done that with, Carrie, you know what question they stop asking me? They stop asking me, where's my opportunity? Where can I contribute? How can I do more? You know, where can I make the most impact? Because that's our part as leaders. We have to give people contribution, meaning, connection to the bigger, uh, the bigger plan. And you do things like that, crisis mode or not. Uh, and right now it's even more relevant. Hand them the pen. I love that. That's it. That's yeah. great. You got a yeah. great story in your book about a shower in the desert and the power of <laughs> scarcity. Um, this is a season of scarcity for almost everyone listening to this podcast. We're just dealing with fewer resources than we have uh, probably at any point in our leadership or at least anticipate dealing with that. Do you, do you want to talk to us about scarcity and how that can work for you in a crisis? Yeah, well, you know, I wrote that lesson uh, carry around an experience that I had, you know, doing Go ahead desert and tell, training tell the in the story. military. Yeah, it's an interesting but, story. You know, I was uh, I was at what's called NTC, the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert when I was in the Army, and we were about two weeks in and hadn't seen a shower the whole time. <laughs> and you know, there was this makeshift makeshift shower at the station, 
and it was my turn in the rotation. And I get there and one of the soldiers that was manning that area handed me two gallons of water. And let's just say I was beyond uh, smelling reasonably. Yeah. And, and I'm like, that's it. That's all I get. Like, that's not going to be near enough. And he said, just pour it in the bucket, raise it. It'll start dripping slowly, but start from your head to toe, go all the way down. And I'm thinking there's no way this is going to work. I fill up the bucket, raise it up and the drip starts. And it was just this little tiny, they call it an Australian shower. And you just started dripping on my stubble. And I just started at the top before I know it, I'm clean as a whistle. And I lower the shower head and I see that I'd only used about half of the water and I'm just, I'm beyond myself. And, uh, the takeaway and the lesson was, you know, often our natural intuition as leaders is when we're running low on, uh, you know, energy, we tend to throw band-aids at things. We tend to try to throw more resources. We try to, uh, throw more people at, at, at our situations and so forth. And more often than not, if you have the discipline to slow down, use less, have deeper, meaningful conversations, you'll find that more is not the answer. Just like I found out that I didn't need more water, but you can't substitute the time and energy that it, that it requires to do that. And I think right now, a lot of people are learning that, uh, in this crisis, where more is not even an option. Hmm. So they're being, they're being baptized per se into that type of mode. It's like, okay, well, we can't even get supplies. We can't get more resources. We can't do that. What can we do? It's part of that. So it kind of shifts the question you're asking. It does. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it does. Um, What is one question no one is asking in this crisis that you think people should be asking? Well, my opinion, Carrie, was what we covered in essence a while ago is how can I start reframing what we're experiencing so so that it lowers our recovery period and the pain that we're going to feel during that time. And again, it's, it's not chronological. It's, it's, it's not just like leadership. It's not a checklist, but it's something that needs to run in parallel, right? Survive, recover and reframe. Hmm. And more conversations need to start evolving around the reframe piece and continuing to shift that narrative. It'll help, it'll help manage the VUCA. It'll help keep people thinking well. It'll help people start thinking about what's possible down the road. And you can send all types of positive signals with that. That's my opinion. That seems to be working pretty well for us right now. Obviously, this story is still being written. Being we written, have no idea yeah. what we're going to title it, but... Uh, so then you know, let me ask for those less fortunate one final question to you, which is, I don't want to be opportunistic and, you know, see people making pronouncements right now. And I'm like, Whoa, way too mm-hmm. soon. We don't know where this is going, but there are opportunities, you know, crisis is the cradle of innovation. It is an opportunity. It's what is, what does this make possible? So when you think about even your own field of employment, what do you think are some opportunities there for when things are reframed and we move into the new normal? Are you seeing anything yet? Uh, so yes. And uh, in a very positive manner, you know, we talked about earlier, the spike in humanity, the spike in compassion. 
when you look at the two workforces that most organizations manage under normal times, uh, there's, I think, a very fair approach that full-time employees are, you know, more important. They're more essential, more critical to the organization. Well, with the spike in humanity and the spike in passion, as the war for talent continues, carry in these non-permanent employees, I think one of the positive outcomes of this is organizations are going to realize that, hey, we're all, you know, we all have a heartbeat. We all have dreams. We all have families. And my hope is that that helps balance that lack of parity out a little bit. Because mm. in the end, you know, we're all, you know, we're all part of the bigger, grander plan. So uh, I see an opportunity for our industry to lean into that so that we can care for these people with more compassion and make them feel like they're also part of something because they're often left to the side. Yeah. And it's an opportunity for us to see them. Ryan, the temp hung out on the office for a long time. If you know that show, right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, so this is, this has been so helpful. And I, I think to a couple of lessons, I'll pull away from this, you know, the digital default church, I think is here to stay, but the digital default workforce is also, uh, it just got accelerated. Just, I don't know, whatever was going to happen in five years mm-hmm. happened in about five days. And that's right. Here we are. That's right. Anything else you want to add, Bobby? Well, I mean, for me, Carrie, my energy is um, around, you know, one of my favorite, um, you know, I have, I'll show this to you here, but yeah, this is my bookmark. It's the prayer for generosity. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, Saint Ignatius Jesuit. Of Loyola, yeah. you bet. And uh, I think right now we're all being called to, in our own way, be as generous as we absolutely can. Hmm. Uh, I'm saying this with my children every day. It's part of our routine and I think we're all being called to tap into what I believe is with the single most important attribute of leadership. And that is generosity and somehow, some way seeing these wonderful people that are going to need us as we get through this. Well, next time we'll have to pick up where we left off because I could spend an hour talking about generosity. It's actually one of our, our company values err on the side of generosity. We're trying to figure out how to do that too, through free and just, financially supporting some people who uh, maybe need a little bit of extra help in this season. So um, Bobby, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So the book is called, for those of you watching on YouTube, The Gift of Struggle. It's a great book. It's an easy, not an easy read. It's a good read, but it's not going to take you three days to get through it. And uh, it's written uh, in a really narrative form as well. So uh, Patrick Lencioni, who we mentioned many times, says a powerful leadership book from the best CEO you've never heard of. That is, uh, and Alan Mulally from Ford and Boeing um, endorsed it. Great book, Bobby. A joy to meet you. And uh, also fun to have a, uh, a listener on the show all the time as well. So this is such a deep privilege. Where can people find you online and where can people find the book? Well, first, Harry, thank you for those kind of words. You're doing great work. Thank you for giving more than you're taking. The world needs your wisdom. And uh, I've been very fortunate to learn from you. So thank you for that. Mm. They can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, my website's bobby-herrera.com. I'm putting out uh, as much as I can around students' struggle and yeah. things that I'm learning through my leadership journey. Um, the essence of everything that I'm putting out is to give. And uh, you know, like I said, a kind act changed my life. And if I can pay that forward to someone else who needs it, 
I feel like I ran through the tape. Bobby, this has been so rich. Thank you. God bless. All hail the underdogs. Well, I hope you found that helpful. And what you're going to discover over the next uh, few weeks in, in the conversations that we have on this show, it's no surprise. Uh, nobody really knows where the bottom is. Nobody knows how to get through this. But you pick up clues along the way. And Bobby offered a few uh, that were so helpful to me. Uh, I'm really, I really am thinking about VUCA. I am thinking about, okay, what can we know about the new normal, even though we don't know what that looks like? Ken Costa and I talk about that next week as well. And then uh, I'm so, super excited for the Mark Sayers conversation. If you listen to this cultural moment, yeah, that Mark Sayers, we're uh, coming on with him very soon. And if you want more, we do have show notes, of course. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 332. And you can find everything we talked about in this episode there, including some quotes that you can share on social media with your friends. Make sure if you do, you tag me because we like to share what you share with other people as well. Uh, and uh, don't forget the crisis course, how to lead through crisis.com or just text crisis to 33777. I've got a what I'm thinking about segment coming up. And today I want to talk to you about the voices of crisis leadership. Um, yeah, that'll make a lot more sense uh, in a few minutes, but I'll tell you, motivation alone is not going to get you through this crisis. Uh, it just doesn't work. And I want to talk about the three crisis voices I'm aware of and uh, how that'll help you. In the meantime, we have uh, an excerpt from the next episode. Here is an excerpt from my conversation with investment banker and Alpha Chair International, Ken Costa. What does engagement mean when the locus, the place where people were meeting, the church, is closed? And for the first time, we are reaching people where they are at, rather than saying, oh, come to me, come into this place. Uh, you know, Ecclesiastes talks about, you know, so now, because you don't know which seed is going to germinate, whether it's this one or that one or both. But what we're doing is actually sowing what kind of worship do people want? Do they want meditation? Do they, or is it just what we've always given them? And that's the piece that I think is the huge opportunity. Whilst the airwaves are clear, there's no Hollywood, there are no football games, there's no basketball games, there, there are no gigs. How the church rises and responds to this will be the, the formative experience of our generation. So that's next time on the podcast. Subscribers, you get it all for free. Thank you so much for uh, getting the word out and sharing things. I know you've got a lot on your mind and kids at home and the whole deal. Uh, your encouragement during this season means the world to me. And we're just going to do the best we can to resource you. So now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And it's brought to you by our partners, Pro Media Fire. They are giving you free graphics. You've got a little bit more time to get in on it. Go to greatnews.world and share with your community the love and the hope of Jesus brought to you by Pro Media Fire. That's all free for you. And ICM, International Cooperating Ministries, doing great work around the world. You can get started for $35 a month. Head on over to icm.org forward slash carry and help some pastors that are even in rougher shape than you are right now. Well, uh, here's what I'm thinking about. I am thinking about how we speak as leaders. And none of us, I mean, it's axiomatic now, but none of us have been through this before. And uh, there's three primary voices I think we have as leaders. One is motivation. 
And a lot of us are motivation. Maybe you've been called a motivational speaker. Sometimes people call me that. I'm like, well, I hope, I hope that's not all I am. But, you know, we do motivation really well. And motivation is a great style of leadership. I mean, in normal conditions, it's like, come on, you can do this. You can, we can build this thing. We can invite our friends. You can lose that weight. I mean, whatever it is, right? Let's do this. We're going to, we're going to motivate you. And motivation alone, unfortunately, is not going to get you through a crisis like this. Uh, you need a much wider skill set because what happens is you can't motivate your way out of a crisis like this. You have to lead your way out of it. So you don't want to lose motivation and you certainly don't want to be demotivating. But if you're just there as the positive person and, you know, the stock market's in the garbage, borders are closing, millions of people are unemployed, everyone's uncertain, uh, trillions of dollars of wealth are wiped out, people's families are dying on them and uh, healthcare workers are, are, you know, stressed to the max. You can't just say, everything's going to be all right, people. I mean, it is going to be all right, but that's a very limited style of leadership. So you need other voices. And I think the one that's needed right now is not just motivation, it's interpretation. And when you use the voice of interpretation, you become a trusted voice for accurate information and next step. So people are confused. They're not 100% sure of what's happening. You already heard that in the interview with Bobby today. You'll hear it in the upcoming interviews. I mean, nobody has navigated this before in our lifetime. So what people need is a source they can trust, somebody who can figure it out and then act accordingly. So what you can do as the voice of interpretation is you can be an accurate source for information. So that means you need really good sources. And number two, it means you got to get rid of partisanship and spin. So if you minimize the crisis, people will not trust you. If you overblow it, people will not trust you. But if you just become a reliable, credible source, uh, things will go better and people will come to trust you. So uh, what you need to do is start interpreting things. And what you do is you just bring the best information that you have. And I would trust the medical authorities in this case and kind of be on the front end of, hey, you know what? It's a little bit ambiguous, but we're going to be on the safe side on this. And then just move people to the next step. That's it. So our next step as a result is that is what I call the voice of interpretation. Very needed right now you can do it. And you've just got to get rid of spin, self-interest, and partisanship in the midst of that. But if you can become a a reliable, trusted interpreter, that sets you up for the third voice, which will be needed. We're we're already seeing hints of this, uh, but it's a little bit early to say what's going to happen down the road. But the third leadership voice is transformation. And that is a trusted voice for where you're headed in the future. See, this is where motivation comes back a little bit. But As the crisis begins to resolve, uh, it may not be lifted all at once, or it might be, we'll talk about that next week's episode with Ken Costa, Um, but what'll happen is you're beginning to get a sense of what the new normal is, and then your job is to lead people from what was, which is now gone, uh, into what will be the new normal. And uh, what that means is crisis will change your methods. We will not be the same. You're going to hear that in interview after interview. I believe that deeply. We are not going back to the way it was. Um, But so it's, it's challenged your methods, but it can give new life to the mission. And what you do in transformational leadership is you then say, okay, here's the new normal. And you tie the new what to the eternal why. So, okay, we're going to have a more, let's just say, advanced digital presence. And some of you are going to meet in groups more often or social distancing is part of the new normal for us. And you just explain 
where you're going, what decisions you're making in the new normal, and why it matters. So when the why and the what line up and the mission gains new life, you not only have a new normal, you potentially have a better normal. So what you're doing as a leader in the midst of this is using all three voices. Uh, Motivation has a role, but not nearly the role it does in normal conditions. Interpretation is really important. And then as we move into the new normal, adopt the voice of transformation. You can learn more about that in my free course on crisis leadership. So it's called How to Lead Through Crisis. And you can get it by going to howtoleadthroughcrisis.com or texting crisis to 33777. That's crisis to 33777. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We are praying for you daily. We are trying to come alongside you however we can. And if you need anything, would you let me know? My email is carrie at carrienewhoff.com. We love you listeners. We love you leaders. Uh, Whether you're leading in business, whether you are leading in the church, we're behind you 100% and we will get through this together. Thanks for listening, and I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.